Green Left Weekly Radio. There is one newspaper that is independent of powerful interests, and that's Green Left Weekly. It's a people's voice committed to human and civil rights, environmental sustainability, democracy and equality. It presents ideas mainstream media won't. It's the leading source of local, national and international news analysis and discussion and debate to strengthen the anti-capitalist movement. It exposes the lies and distortions of the power brokers and helps us to better understand the world around us. Hey, good morning. Welcome to Green Left Radio on 3CR. And we've got Zane, Jacob and Reese this morning. Um, our special guest. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, hey all. Uh, my name's Reese. I'm a, uh, I'm in, I'm a student, uh, activist up in Sydney out at UNSW. I'm active in the uh, International Student Travel Concession Campaign, Refugee Campaign and just about anything else I can get my hands on. Hey. Yeah. Uh, good. You also <coughs> used to be part of the Air Force. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's all behind me now. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, I guess um, we have our program, in terms of um, our program this week, um, sort of some of the interviews we're sort of looking to have didn't sort of really come through, or maybe they did, but we're not sure yet. Um, but we do have one interview um, coming up about with um, a woman um, whose name I didn't... I forgot, but there's a one of our programmers is uh, another a guest is going to be coming in to interview her uh, about specifically about this kind of issue of women's prisons. Um, so okay. it should be uh, interesting and informative interview. Oh, okay, and this is also in relation to the Queensland government building a new yes. private women's yep. prison. Yeah, okay. Yeah, so we'll be having having Bruno, and um, I guess there'll be lots of. There's actually a lot of news stories to talk about. It's, you know, in the past week, there's actually been quite a lot happening in politics. We can. Um, point out that we can um, point to the fa- the massive protests against um, ICE, um, the Immigration's Customs sort of department in uh, the United States. Um, we can also point to the the recent Mexican election results, which we'll have a bit of discussion about later. Um, but I guess I want to start off by talking about a few positive news stories that have come out, I guess, in the past few days. Um, listeners probably know that um, last week we did an interview with the organisers of um, the upcoming Students of Sustainability Conference, which is um, starting today, um, and it will go on for the next across the next five days. Workshops and sessions will actually start on Saturday, and then it will go all the way on to Tuesday, and then on Wednesday there'll be kind of a big a big of a special day. I think then there's some plans that um, a lot of the um, activists who are there will be um, driving over to the Sacred Tree site in Ararat. Uh, but now the important good news story is um, they have secured a venue uh, at the last minute, um, which is brilliant. Um, previously, last week, when we interviewed the activists who were involved in organising the conference, they didn't actually have a venue to sort of point to. Um, but I'll announce that it is going to be at the Fairfield Polytechnic, um, which is sort of in this kind of area of um, around Fitzroy. Um, you can get, get there by taking the Route 86 tram, walking 15 minutes to the east, or or get off at Clifton Hill or the dentist stations, and you know directions are there. Um, so yeah, I just wanted to make that announcement. And the conference is looking quite good. Um, there's going to be a lot of Aboriginal activists who'll be coming all over the country to um, speak at the conference, you know, to share their stories and their experiences. And there'll also be a number of sessions on you know 
lots of different political issues and social justice, mainly focusing around environmental justice, different kind of campaigns. Um, there'll be a workshop on Marxism ecology. There'll be a workshop on housing and a panel on housing and homelessness. There'll also be a, uh, different sessions on different kind of environmental campaigns and or one session on the front line against coal campaign. Well, it was good enough to drag me down here to Melbourne, anyway. Yeah, yeah, because Reese is going to be um, in uh, is um, in Melbourne um, currently for to attend that conference. Um, and now another positive news story um, on a more political note is or federal politics is Michael Danby has actually resigned from politics. Yay! Hey. Good riddance. <laughs> and um, for listeners who don't know Michael Danby, Michael Danby was um, the Liberal Labor, not Liberal, um, Labor Federal MP for the for the seat of um, Melbourne Ports, which um, covers the areas St Kilda, Elsinwick, and think parts of Port Melbourne. But um, those are the main areas. And one of his, what he was very well known for is he was known for using his federal parliamentary office to basically be a big lobby lobbying platform for Zionism and so he was very fiercely pro Israel and actually used a lot of his lot of his federal parliamentary resources to basically campaign against, you know, any support for Palestinian sovereignty, um, campaign against BDS and but campaigned very strongly for, you know, very pro Zionist kind of Israel position. So I think, you know, it's actually a, a positive thing for the Palestinian, um, the movement for Palestine that he's resigned from politics, essentially. Mm, definitely. Yeah. And, um, one of the things actually about that seat is that is potentially a seat that we could go green, um, in the next, at the next federal election. So it is going to be, Interesting times because the Greens are essentially 200 to 400 votes away from winning that seat. Um, possibly even more with the boundary change was there's a, apparently there's going to be a bit of change in boundaries in that particular seat, um, which could see parts of Windsor seep into, um, the Melbourne port seat. So there's, um, yeah, but, uh, we don't know. Um, there's also one of the reasons apparently that Michael Danby is that's being rumoured why he's resigned is that there's potentially an early federal election being rumoured um, and then there's a possibility that Michael Danby wasn't confident that he would be able to win his seat again, retain his seat. Um, so that's interesting. Um, and he, so he resigned to bow out of the potential humiliation of not being elected. So, yeah. Yeah, one more rumour to throw in the bucket. Yes. <laughs> but that's all rumours, like not... Um, factual information, but this is all the fact that there's a rumoured early federal election coming up, but we don't know when. Um, but of course, if their federal election was to come, we will, um, FreeCR will, will be covering it. <laughs> Interesting. So I wonder if Labor will actually replace him with uh, someone with a little bit more progressive street cred. Like, uh, like happened with Batman with the by-election. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, if they want to have any chance of stopping the Greens, that would probably be advisable. Mm. But, like, obviously Danby is from the right faction of the ALP, so that would be interesting to see as well. Mm. It's funny how that, that growing support for the Greens means that the Labor Party can't just take seats for granted and just parachute any kind of faceless man into the seat. They've actually got to put up someone like Jed Carney who's got a bit of left street cred if they want to continue to try and win those seats. So, yeah, it's yeah, interesting. But, but, I mean, that's that's the contradiction. 
in in the past, people who've spent time building up all of that street cred have just been parachuted in, and that was seen as like the reward. Uh, now they're being told you have to get in there and scrap for it, and all of your all of your work in the movement has just been, uh, you know, like a pre-qualifier for this this fight. Now get in there and earn it. Mm. And as we've seen with Jed Carney, um, she's as soon as she was pre-selected for that seat, her public advocacy for refugees vanished. She towed the party line and has continued to do so since being elected to that seat. So, uh, yeah, you get the, what I would call the Jed Carney effect, where <laughs> you're, a, you're a staunch supporter of refugees behind closed doors, but in public you tow the party line and you, you back Bill Shorten when he says stop the boats. So, yes, the Labor Party. Uh, what else is new? Um... Let me think. What? Uh, well, we could possibly make a play a bit of an announcement, and then we'll go um, have a, maybe have a bit of a discussion about um, the Mexican election results. All right, let's do that. All right. Uh, uh, yep. Yeah. So we're we're back here. Um, big news coming out of Mexico is that uh, a left wing candidate, uh, and- Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador, or AMLO. Uh, which I'll be referring to him from here on, uh, has declared victory in the July the 1st election, looking like he's got about 53.5% of the vote, which in the Mexican uh, uh, scenario is a pretty big deal, especially given uh, reports of electoral fraud and so on, where they're trying to take it off him, which has happened to him before. Um, So it looks like um, he's been been called everything from the Mexican Donald Trump to the Mexican Bernie Sanders, so I'm sure... sure, uh, Sure, our listeners will be happy to know that in reality, he's um, he's he represents a whole bunch of, of left-wing positions. Uh, he's basically a, a bit of a left populist, um, and certainly not not any kind of uh, radical revolutionary. But it's definitely good news that he's in there. Uh, it looks like his 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 party or his movement, the the Marina movement, are uh, going to take um, both houses of, of parliament over there. Though I think we're still waiting on uh, the Senate the Senate counting at uh, the time of uh, uh, we go to air. Uh, he's promised to put the poor first and has uh, made a number of claims in his victory speech uh, that he's going to, to work to deliver profound changes and authentic democracy. Uh, unlike a lot of politicians over there, this isn't purely empty wind. Uh, he has actually been mayor of Mexico City, which is a fairly big uh, administrative task over there, and he's, um, he's managed to carry that off and do a lot of uh, left-wing and, and uh, good advocacy for the poor and underrepresented and indigenous movements. That's uh, been the base that he's built his election campaign on. Yeah, yeah I think it's um, a very kind of positive um, result, especially for Mexican politics, because Mexican politics has, you know, as it's been often um, been kind of the domain of kind of right wing kind of politics, probably one of the more right wing um, countries in Latin America. And um, but what I find interesting is sort of like the mainstream kind of Western kind of response from the liberal media has been actually to sort of you know slander him or as basically being equivalent to Donald Trump and that he's going to bring you know Mexico into you know the brink of economic collapse and it's all of race. I thought you were going to say he's going to build a wall and make the <laughs> Americans pay for it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it's but it's always interesting that, that you know these same kind of you know liberal kind of you know sources like the you know the New York Times you know they're always hap- they'll be ha- they're happily you know 
criticise, rightfully critique um, Trump, but they're not willing to get behind any kind of progressive alternative um, to Donald Trump. Um, the fact that is that they compare, they want some kind of res- they want a respectable you know, capitalist kind of elite kind of politician like, you know, the Hillary Clintons or, and, but someone who's generally, you know, for the oppressed and for the poor, they're always going willing to go on the attack on them and because they don't fit within that kind of schema of what they want as in terms of respectable capitalist politics. But probably because, you know, these pop, pop, um, publications like New York Times are capitalist pop, pop, um, equation, but then they do reflect the interests of the capitalists. Yeah, and they're racist. Like, they just don't get the difference between... It, it, there's a big difference between being a a kind of liberal, um, pro-capitalist party in an imperialist country and then being part of a two-party system or trying to change things in a country that is not an imperialist country because you don't have the same sort of economic structure there so the the two-party system in a place like venezuela for instance before the chavistas got in both parties were super right-wing puppets of the u.s elite and and would just do whatever the hell u.s capitalism and international capitalism told them to do which is to basically sell all their oil and resources super cheap to foreign corporations so, by necessity, if you want to have any leftward shift in, in countries that are not super imperialist, you don't have the resources there. Like, part of changing things in those countries is to tell international capital, go away, no, we're gonna, we're gonna have our own domestic politics determined domestically. You, you're not gonna run us like puppets. So, mm. and it's just racist for these media outlets to continually fail to observe that if you want to change anything in these countries, you've necessarily got to be radical. Mm. Well, when when they look at American politics, they're very happy to see every single fine, you know, shade of grey and distinction between all the candidates from the start of the primaries. Then you look overseas and they just see, you know, dangerous troublemakers that might uh, might upset the flow of capital and we can't have that. Yeah. Mm. Well, I think I know, um, just on, since you just mentioned Venezuela, um, there's a bit of a um, recent development in Venezuela that um, the Donald Trump is actually considering some kind of U.S. intervention into Venezuela, um, which would be absolutely disastrous. Of course, they're parodying about you know the fact that oh yes, apparently you know Venezuela is like an authoritarian despot of, and you know that's why we need the U.S. to intervene. But it's all just it's all really complete rubbish. Yes. Like, the, the democratic system in Venezuela is heaps better than what they have in the US. Yeah. And also the fact is that, um, let's say that these, whatever issues that the Maduro government has had, um, there's, there's absolutely no reason for the US to meddle in their affairs. And I'm sure we can, I can say confidently that every time the US has meddled in the affairs of Latin America, it has not been good. It never gets better anywhere. Yeah. Hmm. And just bringing that back to AMLO, uh, hopefully... <coughs> The election of AMLO in Mexico will actually bring some relief for Venezuela because that's a big part of the economic problems there is that there's been this US-led embargo which makes it really difficult for them to trade with other countries Uh, and there's been like a currency war and hoarding and stockpiling and hopefully just up the road in Mexico with that change to a leftist government that's going to bring some relief and some opportunity for you know, mutual kind of assistance between those two countries. 
Yeah. Um, Reese, you wanted to say something? Or? Oh, yeah. Um, it's, it's, it's important to note uh, when we're looking at the, the geopolitics of the whole region um, and the way, the way that that is all playing out, that one of AMLO's um, key campaign promises was a renegotiation of the NAFTA treaty uh, to try and, to try and um, you know, bring them out of the clutches of the, the American uh, free trade um, you know, free trade domination. So with him, with him promising uh, a, a NAFTA renegotiation and with Trump saying, you know, it's the worst deal ever and very bad deal, uh, it'll be interesting watching them go toe-to-toe and, and to see if they can uh, hash anything out there. Uh, but it's certainly it's good to see Mexico or a Mexican politician abandoning that submissive role and saying, hey, no, America, we have the right to, um, to determine the, the terms of trade for ourselves. And in, in addition to that, there's a number of other economic uh, policies around that as well. Uh, where AMLO is talking about um, improving welfare and social services and, and um, trying to put back into place the social safety net that's been eroded by neoliberalism, uh, job programs for the poor, and agricultural development as well, which is one of the uh, the big, um, I think it's corn farmers that have been hit hardest by NAFTA, uh, and because America's, um, America's production of corn just sort of swamps the market, and they're very happy, free trade or not, to subsidise their corn farmers. Um, so there's there's a renegotiation of NAFTA that might bring a a, a, a hint of economic decency back to the Mexican economy, uh, rather than just seeing him as an American puppet. So that, that would be lovely to see. Mm-hmm. All right, now going talking about actually we'll play a quick announcement, then move on to another story about politics in the United States. Indeedy-do. All right, welcome back. F yeah, it's Friday. Uh, it's 7:23 in the AM. You're on 3CR, and this is Green Left Radio with Zane and Jacob and our special guest, Reese. All right. So um, it's, um, there's actually quite a lot happening in um, politics in the United States, and um, last week we talked about, um, you know, the, re- the win of the, you know, socialist Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez um, in the seat in New York. Uh, well, basically she won the Democratic primary and, you know, safe Democratic seat as an open um, socialist and a member of the Democratic Socialists of America, mm, you know, which is so actually sen- um, you know, sending quite a lot of shockwaves around internationally. Um, I've even seen, like, you know, trade unions like host the new HOSPO Voice share articles um, about you know her talks on um, on the face social media pages, and I think the reasoning for that is it's very refreshing to see an ordinary twenty year, twenty eight year old you know working class woman, you know, mm. being represented as a as someone who could potentially be uh, elected politician in the Congress, and yeah. I just think that's Latino quite working class woman who comes from a hospitality working background. Yeah, it's so refreshing. Like, yeah, I'm I'm all for. Bernie Sanders and Jeremy Corbyn, but like this is, older white men are too represented in in the leadership of socialist sort of you know lefty movements, and it's it's good to see uh, yeah a a young Latina woman flying the flag of of socialism in in New York and the USA. It's it's awesome. Yeah. Now in the um related to that is that there's been a huge massive protest in response to. Um, Donald Trump's kind of do- zero tolerance policy of, you know, separating immigrate, immigrate, uh, immigrate, uh, immigrate, um, immigrant children from, um, from their parents seeking asylum. And, you know, more, there's been more than a hundred thousand people took to the streets in the United States on June 30th in about 750 cities and towns in every state across the country. And of course, there was, 
um, as Barry Shepherd um, writes here in Green Left Weekly, there would have been undoubtedly many more if there had been more time to get the word out. And, of course, these call for these demonstrations was only made on, like, such a short notice two weeks before. And so, um, you know, one of the... One of the um, U.S. socialist worker reporters covered some of the other places, and their estimates were that there were over 70,000 in Los Angeles, 50,000 in um, Chicago, tens of thousands in New York City, and, of course, there's more than 700 cities. Um, of course, I think one of the interesting things that um, Barry notices, you know, as in previous um, anti-Trump actions, the crowds spanned generations, they were multiracial, they brought together people who had never protested before with veteran organisers and agitators and of course the spirit of the actions were captured by the mostly handmade signs with messages ranging from moving responses to the horrors of the prisons housing children and infants to demand that went further and I think what's coming what's interesting in terms of the kind of political kind of discourse that's coming out of these protests is there's a really radical demand kind of being put forward that you know and this is the demand that Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez um, put forward in her election campaign, that is that we should abolish ICE, um, which is the Immigrations and Customs Enforcement, um, which is the agency spearheading um, Trump's um, campaign of terrorising immigrants. And, you know, when you com- contrast that with um, the state of Australian politics in terms of our horrid um, Australian, um, you know, immigration policy, we don't actually have people putting out the demand that, you know, we should abolish the Immigration Department. But in the United States, things have gotten quite radicalised to the point where people are making a demand that would have been seen as quite radical, that we should be abolishing ICE. Hmm. So that would be the equivalent of, like, saying abolish uh, Australian border force? Yes, that would be, yeah. Um, because, you know, the border force, I mean, one of the the arguments as well is that ICE is actually quite a recent phenomenon. Um, in fact, it was only established in 2002. Hmm. Um, it's not, the, it's not the department, um, it's not the, the department that prom- processes everything around immigration. It's specifically been designed to simply terrorize immigrants yeah, they're, on the they're border. They're a blunt weapon. They're yeah. A, yeah. Hmm. And I think what's even interesting is, um, even Bernie Sanders hasn't been as radical enough to call for the abolishment of ICE, um, where, but of course, his successors who are coming out of the wake of his campaign, like, you know, Alexander Corso Cortez was actually, you know, an organiser for the Bernie Sanders campaign, is putting forth that demand of abolishing ICE. So I think that's um, showing that, that things are, you know, moving um, shiftly to the left in the United States. Well, I mean, Bernie, Bernie was just, he, he was calling for, a, like, a, an assessment of policy and trying to get the policy right. The thing that does worry me under the Trump government is, yeah, let's say you, you get rid of ICE by some miracle, and now it's the job of the Treasury or the National Guard, or you just throw it to the next next mob in line and then say, oh, you go and do the brutalisation now, and we've given the Liberals what they want. Yeah. <laughs> I don't have anything particular to contribute to that, but yeah, it's, uh, yeah. Um, I don't think they're going to win that demand in the immediate uh, future. But it's uh, yeah, it's good to see all this mobilisation. Yeah, but um, there has been some backtracking um, of Donald Trump on on some of the inhumanity of the immigration policies. Um, so the movement is clearly having effect, mm-hmm. um, and so they get a key, I think um, it's giving people confidence to keep on pushing and mobilising. Yeah, you'd better believe he's scared about the mid or the, the midterm elections coming up. He's definitely got his eye on that and his his uh, base in the Republican Party. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, just just one fun, one, one uh, fun fact about the Ocasio-Cortez uh, campaign. She was outspent by the incumbent, like, Democrat, uh, that, that they were contesting the primary. She was outspent by 18 to 1. Her campaign was oh, outspent yeah. by... It was big money, it was ad money, it was TV time. And the, the socialist approach of wearing out your shoes and door knocking and going door to door and actually making connections with people is what won that, won that primary. And that's, like, that's the biggest thing for me to take out of it. Yeah, absolutely. Wow, that's so cool. Well, I think um, some of the things I've read about that um, campaign... Um, oh, sorry. Oh, sorry about that. Um, one of the interesting things um, that are... You know, one of the interesting things I've read in terms of the articles about analysing her campaign is one of the values, um, one of the things that really... Um, made the election campaign strong was the fact that, you know, her election campaign built all these coalitions with all these different community organisations and commu- and activists and, you know, community groups um, to basically make it happen. Um, while the Democratic Socialists of America played quite a strong role in the campaign in terms of mobilising activists and mobilising people on the ground, they only made 20% of you know, the supporter base and the other 80% was a coalition of different kind of activists and community groups and um, residents groups and all, all sorts of people um, in the community. Yeah, that's huge. It's easy It's easy to be isolated as an activist and to think you're, you're doing it alone or you're the only person who thinks about these things. And it's really good to be part of a big uh, coalition campaign like that where you see that everyone has the same interests and you can all come together and actually get some effective action out of that. Yeah. Mm. Okay, um, cool. Um, just could you play a qu- we'll play a quick announcement? Yes. Uh, two steps on the water, uh, with yo yo, or, or yo yo, as the case may be. I don't know if they were going for that hip hop vibe, <laughs> or more like the, uh, the small thing on a string that spins. Possibly the latter. <laughs> Here we have all the serious music criticism you could want at uh, Green Left Radio. <laughs> That's right. Uh, and yeah, we've got our next guest. Just um, Jacob's just gone to get her. Karen Fletcher is going to be talking to us about um, this new announcement um, that there's going to be a private, r- privately run women's prison run by Serco in in uh, Brizzy. Uh, yeah, and then we've got another interview coming up later on. Uh, let me just text, check my texts. We are going to speak to... Oh, coming down the corridor now. Hello. Um, <clears throat> yeah, pardon me. We're going to speak to Edie Shepherd, who's the ATSI organiser at Vic Trades Hall Council. The NADOC rally is happening today, so yeah, we're going to touch base with Edie about the rally and about the theme for uh, this year's NADOC week. So, yeah, cool stuff coming up. I'm just going to play another brief uh, announcement, and then, yeah, we'll we'll be back in... Alright, um, so you're listening to Green Left Weekly. Um, it is, um, 7.4, well, Green Left Weekly Radio. Um, it is 7.39 a.m. on the 8.55 a.m. dial. And, um, we have another guest coming in for the program, um, Karen Fletcher, who will be actually helping us with, uh, an interview that we're going to be doing in five minutes. 
Um, but just the first news story I kind of want to talk about is um, this is an article in the latest Green Left Weekly, and it's about this whole issue of racism and the World Cup. And um, the article kind of opens with um, a bit of a description about the FAIR network, which is football against racism in Melbourne. I mean, not in Melbourne, in Europe. Um, It's an organisation that tracks racism and homophobia in the football and soccer world. Uh, And for the 2018 World Cup in Russia, they set up a series of diversity houses for the LGBTQI community and people of colour. Um, but what has um, what have what has happened is in you know for a city like St Petersburg, they have been evicted from the building that they were leasing for these safe spaces. Um, other tenants were also reported under instruction not to offer subleases, leaving only the brutal symbolism of a diversity house shuttered. Uh, assessing local accusing local authorities. Um, you know, Fair Directors Palio Poir told the AP, it seems clear that the, the project in St. Petersburg has been subject to a political ca- attack of the kind that shows how debates around human rights are curtailed by powerful conservative forces in Russia. And the need for Fair and um, similar organisations is pressing for the 2018 World Cup. Um, racist incidents in Russia, football, Russian football by players, fans and hooligan clubs, hooligan clubs, Clubs in recent years have been routinized and discrimination is a regular reality for black pay- players. Um, just for one kind of example, during a UEFA Youth League match against the Russian top-tier club Spartak Moscow last December, Liverpool's Ryan um, Brewster was abused by a Russian opponent with a combination of racial and homophobic elements. Um, the incident, a touchstone illustration of football's contemporary racism, came after a match in, in September in Moscow where another young black Liverpool player was subjected to a racist monkey chance by Spartak fans. Um, so, yeah, this kind of, like, you know, raises kind of a different, um, you know, a number of different kind of questions about, you know, FIFA and its kind of relationship with, um, especially in the context of the fact that, you know, Russia hosting the World Cup can be seen as a nadir of FIFA's relationship with racism. And, of course, Russia has had a long problem with racism in its stadiums and FIFA doesn't seem to put be putting any kind of real pressure on Russia to clear um, up its act. And... And, of course, you know, this extends to the news of diversity houses. Even while FIFA reportedly made high-level representation, representations to stop the eviction in St. Petersburg, there's no doubt that the organisation that has all the power and influence in the game could really do more if it was a priority. Um, and the World Cup's diverse and international crowds may make racist incidents less likely, but regardless, it is an issue clearly academic in the game, and organisers stress that FIFA's efforts must be better beyond the Russian torment. So, yeah, that's a bit of a summary of kind of like a bit of a situation around the World Cup and, you know, racism. In right. Um, so, um, Reese, you have another news story you want to share? Uh, no, I'm 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 alright. Uh, I don't have anything in front of me. Uh, but thanks thanks for bringing up that World Cup racism uh, stuff. It's always interesting to see the way you know there's a, there's a lot of money floating around the world and, and riding on this, and uh, it's interesting to see the kind of distortions any time there's that much money uh, getting around. Well, actually, um, that just brings up on this whole issue of racism and um, the World Cup. What is actually quite fascinating um, has been the response of the far right um, to the. F- 
um, the uh, makeup of the um, France national team um, because the France um, national team has a lot of um, you know people of colour, a lot of African um, migrants. Uh, the, um, it's actually pissed off um, the National Front <laughs> in France, um, claiming that the team is not. They make you know making claims that the team is not pure enough or not purely French enough because it has a lot of people of colour in its ranks. Um, the English team is actually also quite a similar um, case where there's actually strong diversity of um, people of colour being representative, which I think is also reportedly being pissing off, you know, the far right, saying that, you know, there's been called claims that, you know, the team doesn't actually actually represent us. (laughs) And I think the far right party in Germany also made a similar kind of comment to the German national team. And I actually think they tried to make the argument, well, this is why German lost the World Cup, uh, the group stage, because they didn't have enough pure Germans. In oh, you've got to find someone to blame, don't yes. you? Yeah, talking about uh, Otsil, I think it is the um, striker who I think is of Turkish background, and there's a lot of Turkish migrants in Germany, and yeah, really disgusting racism. And I'd like to see that fascist politician pull on a football jersey and do a better job than the uh, than the German number ten, because I reckon he'd be substantially worse. Well, he you have these notionally nationalist uh, politicians sitting there saying, you know, we all need to come together and be one Germany or one France. And then you have a working a working example of people actually coming together and putting their differences aside and their, their backgrounds and whatever and, and coming together and representing their nation. And then all of a sudden that's not good enough because it's, uh, it's bad optics for the right and they don't like it. All right, let's uh, move on. Um, so... On the line this morning, uh, we have got Debbie Kilroy from Sisters Inside, uh, and we also have a special guest, Karen Fletcher, in the studio this morning, and yeah, we're keen to discuss the uh, announcement from the Queensland government that they're going to build a privately run uh, women's prison run by Serco. So, uh, welcome Debbie, welcome Karen. Good morning. Good morning. Hey, Debbie, I can't hear you. Maybe I, that's because I have to put my headphones on. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So you have to put... Hey, you there, mate? Yeah, I'm here. Hi. So <clears throat> we should say at the beginning, Debbie and I used to work together um, in Queensland a few years ago uh, when I was at the Prisoners Legal Service, and Deb's been at Sisters Inside how long now? Um, well, we set it up in 92, so a little bit. <laughs> so you're a stayer. A little bit of time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm a stayer. <laughs> And, um, yeah, we wanted to talk this morning about uh, the announcement this week by the Queensland Government that they will open the um, South East Queensland prison, currently run by Serco for men, as a women's prison. Could you give us a rundown of what's happened uh, in the last week? Sure. So uh, Minister Mark Ryan, who's the Minister for Prisons, announced when he was out at Borellan on Tuesday... Um, the opening of uh, about 190 cells at Borellum and then added, he thought quietly at the end, um, that the men would be moved out of um, Southern Queensland prison, that's at Gatton, we call it Gatton, uh, into Borellum and that that prison would now be opened as a women's prison. Is this a, sh- a shock to sisters inside? Um, it's a... Uh, of course, any new prison is a new is a shock. But I mean, we had have had been having numerous conversations with the minister and the commissioner from corrections about um, you know doing this um, and had opposed it behind the scenes and we tried to work to stop it. But it's the only option that corrections had put to the minister, 
Um, that's what they told us, and that there was no other options where we, um, you know, bloomed and fought with them about that there's plenty of options. Um, predominantly one, a number of strategies that could be undertaken to reduce the numbers of women in prison instead of just opening a new prison and increasing the numbers of women in prison. But corrections didn't want any part of that. And of course they don't because they're in the prison industry. You know, they want to build more prisons. That's their business. Um, but I mean, the shock is, and, and which we, what we raise, is this is going to be the first private-run women's prison by Serco in the world. And we know the horrific... Um, you know, human rights abuses that Serco uh, known for in other prisons around the world. And um, it's actually horrifying to think about that the most marginalised and disadvantaged women, particularly Aboriginal women, are going to be dumped out in Gatton um, under the hands of Serco in absolute isolation and, um, yeah, being run by Serco where none of us will be able to get in there. Um, with our access will probably be... Um, stopped and they will hide behind commercial incompetence. is a British company, right? Um, yeah. It's uh, pretty well known for immigration detention in Australia. I think it runs every single immigration detention centre mm. uh, run by the Australian government. Yeah. And it's pretty well known for touting its services around the world. Not so long ago they were um, touting for business for family detention and no doubt for children's detention in the United States. I don't know if they've broken into that market yet. But they seem to have um, had quite an impact on the Queensland government. Do you know anything about the lobbying activities that um, that Serco's been involved in up there? We have no idea. Like, I watched this short, um, like a YouTube uh, video, I think that's what they call them. Um, anyway, like a thing on YouTube recently about Serco and um, how, you know, the majority of people in the world would never have heard of Serco because they just go on with their business very quietly. And their tentacles, um, you know, it was described in this YouTube video of being like a spider web. And it's so true when you actually watch this short, it was like just over two minutes about where their tentacles are going and where their tentacles are. Like they're in nuclear, um, um, the nuclear area, the military bases. They actually um, look after, if you like, or manage even the planes that the Queen flies around on, you know, the royals. They're... They run public schools in an area in the UK. They, like, it, yeah, it's like sort of mind blowing. Um, and also, obviously, immigration detention centres, well, prisons, we call them. A prison is a prison is a prison. You know, um, and they're just getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And on the quiet, that no one really knows about. And, and um, you know, they lobbied for, and I think they got the call centre for NDIS. They were tendering for the call centre for Centrelink. Um, I'm not sure if they've got the contract already for the new big mega prison in New South Wales, but they were tendering also, we knew, for um, public housing in New South Wales. So um, they're out there and they're um, getting the contract for just about everything. It seems incredible that such a sort of uh, shadowy organisation, as you say, not many people know much about, have got such a huge public role, sort of a, a, taking over so many public functions and with responsibility for vulnerable people. I mean, in this case, um, I'm presuming that the women's prison will, will um, unfortunately, have a very high proportion of Aboriginal, Queensland Aboriginal women. Yeah, yeah, it will. And this is the problem. Like, if we, as a community, as a state, as a country want to have prisons 
as part of our community, they must be open and accountable and transparent, and they ne- never will be when private corporations come in and run them. Um, we have to be able to hold the prison system accountable for the treatment of people that we want to actually lock up in prison um, and that court, you know, sentence to or remand them in. And the other vulnerable area, like it's not only Aboriginal women, is what we know through evidence of Triple C Task Force Blackstone, which has been happening at the Crime Corruption Commission at the moment, looking at corruption and risk of corruption in prisons or corrections across Queensland, is that, you know, at a number of mentally ill women. So it jumped from about, I don't know the figures in front of me at the moment because I'm at home, but um, but you can get it online. <clears throat> it's evidenced by the general manager of Brisbane Women on May 29th, I think, um, where he talks about the number of open cases with prison mental health for women went from about 86 or so, around 85, let's say, um, last year to about 150, 160 this year. So these are the women that we're talking about, women with serious mental health issues that are actually going to be put in a private prison with no checks and balances and an absolute isolation, where the reality is going to be too, that the majority of support services, which isn't many, that go into the women's prison now will not go to Gatton, you know, and even the state government services will not go to Gatton. For example, um, a high number of women, about 85% of women are primary caregivers of their children, and, you know, a lot of those children are in the care you know, under child protection orders. And so we even have a situation now where a court would order that the mother and child have contact, and which means that the Department of Child Safety must take the child to visit the mother in prison to have contact, and they fall back now and say that they don't have the resources to do it, so women don't get those, that contact with their children. They are never going to see their children at Gatton. There's no public transport. There's nothing. So they, these are going to be... The women that this government obviously doesn't care about at all, their disposal and to be dumped out the, you know, back blocks of Gatton. It seems like a throwback to, you know, a few decades ago in Queensland. I mean, I think Queensland was probably the first state of Australia to have a private prison. And I remember when that happened, prison numbers started to go up quite markedly. And Mm. I remember talking to you about the fact that... um, Mm. People who were working in the private prisons as, you know, um, preparing parole applications and doing remissions for um, prisoners, you know, they seem to have a bit of a slowdown in comparison with the people in the public system. And uh, I remember thinking, you know, well, that's in the interest of their employer, isn't it, to keep people in for longer, um, not uh, not get them out on parole, not get them out on remissions. Um, Do you think that sort of business... um, uh, model is going to have an impact on the numbers of women in prison too? Oh, we're going to see the numbers continue to rise because we know that when there's empty prison cells, it's sort of like empty hospital beds. They get filled. That's the reality. You know, if there aren't prison cells, well, then the courts usually will, you know, look at other ways in their sentencing or in their, you know, bail conditions to deal with the issues that's before them and hopefully, you know, work out a plan with the person that they can be in the community safely. You know, the other problem we've got, we've had the evisceration of social services over decades now under um, successive governments, state, territory, federal governments. You know, we have no housing that's available. I think um, one of the big religious organisations, apparently it was Anglican or one of them, did a report earlier this year about all the... um, 
the social housing here in Queensland, that not one um, one of the accommodation across Queensland could be rented um, whilst you're on Newstart. And the majority of people come out on Newstart, you know, uh, and that hasn't been increased for over um, two decades either by the federal government. So we're just dumping our most impoverished, you know, homeless, mentally ill, drug-addicted, violated black women in prison. That's where they're pipelined because the community doesn't care less about these women. And I'm calling on the community to please show some care that these are other human beings and they must not be dumped under the management of a private prison being Serco that has a horrific track record of treatment of people in their prison. Mm. So just uh, on that, Debbie, the, um, they do one, run one women's facility, I think, in Britain, mm. the Immigration um, yeah. Detention Centre, and it has been absolutely racked by allegations of sexual oh. assault of the women there, including by employees of Serco. I know yep. at Christmas Island, they ran Christmas Island for a long time, probably yes. still do, but when there was kids there, um, you know, there was, it, it, it was really, even, even Serco employees were coming out and blowing the whistle on the um, mm. sexual assaults and, yeah. and problems oh, there. Yeah, I know, and there was about 100 women in Yarlswood earlier this year um, that went on a hunger strike where women were actually putting their own lives at risk um, of death to expose um, what Serco was doing to them. Mm. I know, it's horrific. And we have a Labor government that is predominantly run by women, predominantly the left, and here we are. I cannot believe, that's the part that I cannot believe, that I'm actually talking about this while a Labor government is in power. I could get it on one level if the LNP were in, but this is a Labor government. And, you know, the Premier must step in and must stop this decision. It must be overturned as a matter of urgency. Thanks, Debbie. Look, there was just one other thing I was going to um, raise, which is this issue about women on short-term and, um, you know, return from parole and, and on bail in the women's prison. You've said um, in other places about this. This seems to be one of the issues with the large numbers of women in prison, that there's people, so many women who are going in, um, you know, not on the substantive sentences, but on remand, not, not, not convicted yeah. of anything, or yeah. return for minor infractions of parole, and that's really boosted the numbers and caused this overcrowding problem at Brisbane Women's, which is being used to justify this decision. What, what kind of action could be taken to really address that problem of, um, you know, putting women in prison that really shouldn't, by any logical um, calculation, shouldn't be there? Yeah. Well, at the moment, it's about 42% of the women in prison are on remand. So that, you know, and it's going up, the number's going up. So we'll be at about 50% soon. So we're talking about half the women in the prison are on remand. They're not even sentenced. Um, and the reality is that the majority of the offences that they're in there for, they will never get sentenced to a term of imprisonment. So this is about, once again, poverty and homelessness. They don't have an address or they're mentally ill um, or they need detox rehab where there aren't enough at all in the community. So, you know, this is about what we've got now is the accumulation of the fundamental failure of successive government around... Um, supporting and putting support, social supports in the community where now it's, you know, prison is the default response for those social services, for poverty, for homelessness, for, because they actually don't want to spend the money, uh, you know, on people that actually need it the most in our community. Um, so they are getting paid back by being dumped in the prison system 
and we know, everybody knows that when you go into prison, you, you are on, you know, the, the cycle of return. We know that 74%, for example, of Aboriginal women now who are in prison have been in prison before. So why the hell are we opening another prison when we know it's a fundamental failure? If any good business practice out there understands, you know, business and they had a 74% failure rate, they would be doing things differently. But what we have is successive governments pouring more and more millions and billions of dollars are down the failed throats of corrective services. Oh, look, I'm sure, Debbie, a lot of people listening to this today would like to be able to do something to support mm. the campaign to stop this prison. What, do you, what, what would you recommend? How do they get in touch with um, what Sisters Inside are doing and what kind of campaigns uh, sure. might rev up? Yeah, well, we've got... Um, you can check out our Facebook page and, and I'm on Twitter, but the reality is what we need is as many people as possible to write to the Premier, Anastasia Palaszczuk, and write to Mark Ryan, the Minister of Prisons, to ask them questions as to why has this decision been made and why are you allowing women who actually need the most support and protection in the community have not been and are not going to be provided that and why are they opening um, Circo, a private women's prison for the most marginalised and disadvantaged women. Um, the reality is, is that the government must respond to letters and so we need more, as many letters as possible to go to the Premier of this state to ask why she has decided this, um, considering she's a woman as well. Why has this decision been made on the backs of other women? And you've got your conference coming up uh, towards the end of the year? Yep, in November. You want to just let people know a little bit about that? You always have some amazing speakers at that, um, and I imagine this topic will be high on the agenda. It is. The topic's um, Imagining Abolition, A World Without Prisons, which (laughs) we're on the back foot again. as the state's power um, shows us. But, yes, we will have some fantastic speakers. We'll have a great um, line-up of a number of First Nations women that come and talk about a number of areas around Castle State and how that we can imagine a world without prison. We have Angela Davis again, Erica Miners. Um, we have a number of Māori women that are coming from New Zealand, which is fantastic, Kim Pate from Canada. Um, so it'll be a great line-up. Um, Artie Jackie Huggins from National Congress, Pat Turner, um, lead Aboriginal woman from um, Central Australia. Uh, yeah, and the list goes on. So we have a, also a Facebook page uh, as well there, so you can find that quite easily, Imagining Abolition, um, and join. And, um, yeah, the uh, we're called for papers. Abstracts will be out soon, so others can come and join us to have a discussion about that. We won't be discussing reform or net widening, we actually want a discussion about imagining a world without prison. Well, we're with you, Debbie, and um, hopefully we'll be in touch uh, again uh, as you struggle against this prison and, we, and others join with you to do that. Yeah. Um, and maybe we can talk to some of your guests from the conference. It sounds incredible. It's always a huge lineup of First Nations women, especially um, at the Sisters Inside conference, and a huge um, inspiration for try to imagine a world without prisons. Thanks so much for coming on Greenleaf Radio. Yeah, thanks heaps, Debbie. Uh, Keep up the awesome work. Thank you.
All right. Um, yeah, Debbie Kilroy there from Sisters Inside, as you heard, and uh, yeah, do check out the uh, check out the Facebook page for Sisters Inside. Find out about the conference, and importantly, write to the Queensland Premier because uh, it's important to get this horrible private prison um, stopped. Uh, all right, we've got the activist calendar coming up. We'll just play a quick announcement. All right, welcome back. You are on 3CR. It's Green Left Radio, and it's time for the activist calendar. Alright, um, so we have quite a lot happening um, t- uh, today. Um, in 30 minutes, um, well, not 30, well, in an hour from now, um, there'll be the 2018 NAIDOC march, which will be at 9am outside the, um, which will start at 9am at the Victorian Aboriginal Health Service at 186 Nicholson Street in Fitzroy. And I think there's some uh, banner painting and kind of prep happening there, and then the march is actually going to be leaving there at about 10, so... Oh, no, 11.30, actually. Oh, okay, cool, 11.30 cool. when the march starts, but um, I yeah. definitely recommend coming down there from 9 to 11.30am, because there'll be a number of stalls there from the Aboriginal community, and that's sort of where people will be gathering, and also I heard there'll be some music and kind of entertainment and some speeches before them. March starts. Um, also happening at, uh, is there'll be a music, uh, Indigenous music gig, um, Alice Sky and Emily Warimari at the Wesley Ann, and it's Indigenous songwriters, singer songwriters and storytellers Emily Warimari and Alice Sky will are coming together for a special joint national tour, and they'll be at 8 p.m. at Wesley Ann, 250 High Street in Northcote. Um, there'll be another event, um, Songs of Memory and Hope, Remembering the Black Ma- um, Bayek Massacre in West Papua, commemorating the 1998 massacre. At, um, they'll be at 6pm at Brunswick Town Hall at Corner of Sydney, and it's organised by the Dafar um, Federal Republic of West Papua. Um, from Saturday the 7th of July to the Sunday... Sunday, July 8th, um, will be the Australian Refugee Action Network Conference, which is at the ANMF building at 535 um, Elizabeth Street in the city. Um, and, of course, from Saturday, the July 7th to Wednesday, July 11th, the Student Sustainability Conference will be happening, um, and that will be at the um, Fairfield Polytechnic um, campus. Um, the conference actually also technically starts at Friday, but that's where people will be sort of gathering. Um, but you should definitely, you know, Come to the Yarra Bend Park if you're available um, day at the in um, to sort of see the campsite and everything because they'll be they'll be all setting up. Um, so from Monday, July 9th to the end of the week, there will be um, a big sort of fixed public transport action in Melbourne. Um, we are not sardines. Um, join the Victorian Socialist Campaign to fix public transport in Melbourne um, for the week starting July 9th. We'll be um, Leafling at train stations and targeting train lines all around northern um, Melbourne. We'll have stalls, flyers, and even a couple of sardine-themed stunts. Um, on Wednesday, July um, 11th, there'll be a seminar, New Catalonia's Referendum and the Struggle of the Karnik People, um, and they'll be um, happening at 4.30pm at the fourth floor, John Medley Bridge at Melbourne University, enter from Grattan Street, and supported by the Melbourne Pacific Studies Network. Um, there'll be a social evening as well in the Karnik Independence Update, and they'll be happening at the 180, uh, 6.30, 180 Palestine... Tyne Street in Carlton and it's enter for the French um, but for more interview contact um, Charles Wee at, at 0404-126-655 or Nick McCullen at on 404-21-840-100 
On Thursday, July the 12th, there'll be a fundraiser, Fight for Your Mic, Support for ECR's 2018 Radiothon with Greek Resistance Bulletin, and they'll be happening at the Open Studio at 204 High Street in Northcote. Um, from Friday, July the 13th to Saturday, July the 14th, there'll be um, a Latin American Film Nights at the RRIRL Info Shop at 228D Ashley Street in West Footscray, and that is organised by Lasnet. Um, there'll be another event um, Sunday, July the 15th, Rally for the NABC. Um, there'll be a pro- it's a protest against the ABC's funding cuts, um, continual political interference against our public um, broadcast, and any suggestion of selling off or privatising the ABC. And so there'll be uh, happening at. Actually, it's not really a particular location. I think it's actually at 12 p.m. at the State Library. Um, but I'll yeah, for some reason we don't have the date here on the print. Um, on Wednesday, July the 18th, there'll be a public meeting, Build Homes, Not Prisons, um, um, which will have a number of speeches, including Adam Omura from the Collingwood Estate Community, Stephen Jolly, from Yarra Councillor and from Victorian Socialist Candidate, and the Speaker from the Flemington Kensington Legal Centre Community Hall. And that'll be at the Affen Gardens Public Housing Estate at 140 Brunswick Street in Fitzroy, and it's hosted by Victorian Socialists and the Affen Gardens Public Housing Residents Association. On Thursday, July the 19th, um, there will be the UMSU Winterfest Activist History Tour and come and learn about the decades of radical history at your student union and the university campus. And they'll be at 2pm at the Union House, University of Melbourne, and it's hosted by the Environmental Collective and the University of Melbourne Student Union. Um, There'll be a performance, Songs and Words, with... um, Uncle Jack Charles, and it's evening of music and spoken word with the legendary actor, musician, potter, and Aboriginal elder Jack Charles at 7pm at the St. Charlie Bar. And this will be just the last announcement I'll make. Um, there'll be uh, a rally, um, five years too many, bring them here. This July will mark five years since the PNG solution was announced, five years of limbo in offshore detention hellholes, two years since um, Manus was declared illegal, and they'll be at 2pm at the State Library on July the 21st. Alright, and I'll just give a little plug too. Um, my partner went last night with a work colleague. I was keen to go, but I was just a bit wrecked after selling my labour all day. Uh, but there's a quarterly magazine about sex, gender and identity called Archer. And last night they had a party to celebrate the release of their 10th uh, issue of the magazine. And so this one is the history issue, fighting stigma then and now. And it's got articles on sex work and society, trans exclusion, indigenous queer elders, dominatrix across time, butch lineage, perspectives on HIV, Muslim futurism, and William Yang on art and gay liberation, and Miss Blanks on music and empowerment. So, yeah, if you see that magazine around town, Archer, uh, pick one up and have a geese, because, uh, yeah, evidently it's... Um, yeah, it's a really beautifully put together magazine and it's got some really good stuff in there about, you know, issues that you wouldn't usually, um, read about in the conventional media, I guess. And so, yeah, it's a, it's a good new voice for LGBTIQA issues. So check it out. Uh, alright. I am going to play a quick announcement, get on the phone and, uh, yeah, we'll be talking shortly to, um, to Evie. Uh, about the uh, NADOC week and the rally that's coming up and the, and the theme for this year. All right, I'll be with you in one second. All right, welcome back. Uh, 
bit of Yossi Yindi there, uh, world turning, and I've got to cut it short because uh, on the phone this morning we've got uh, Evie Shepherd, who is the Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander organiser at um, Fick Trades Hall Council, and uh, yeah, we're going to talk to Evie about um, the fact that it's NAIDOC week and there's a rally happening today, and uh, yeah, so welcome Evie. Hello, thanks for having me. Oh, cheers. Um, so yeah, first we we just uh, do an activist calendar each week, and we were just giving a plug for the rally that's uh, coming up today. Could you tell us a bit about what's going to be, uh, yeah, happening? Cool. So um, this week, and also actually next week, because Victoria do it better than anyone else, is Madoff Week. But in Victoria, we have Madoff Fortnight. Word. Um, yeah, which is how it should, it should be Madoff Year, but anyway. <laughs> <laughs> today is the annual Madoff March. So what happens is there's a big street party where we celebrate our cultures and communities. You can grab a feed, have a yarn with some elders happening outside the Victorian Aboriginal Health Service on Nicholson Street, uh, just opposite the um, Selby Museum. And then from about 11.30, we, um, we have our march. So we walk past a bunch of significant sites. Uh, in Nam, so we'll walk up Nicholson Street to Parliament, stop at Parliament for a bit, which is particularly uh, pertinent because there's a lot of things sort of happening in the um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander space, I guess, on a state-based political level. Mm. Um, then head down to Fed Square, where we have another big party with music and dancing and songs um, at Fed Square, and that kicks off at once. That's that end of the party. Yeah, nice. And can you tell us a bit about the um, the theme for NADOC Week, or indeed um, NADOC Fortnight this year? <laughs> uh, because of her, we can. Yes. So this year, um, as you mentioned, the theme is because of her, we can, which I'm pretty excited about. I feel like it's a pretty special one, um, where we're explicitly acknowledging and celebrating the role that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander women play within our society. So for you know, time immemorial... Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander women have carried our dreaming stories, songlines, languages and knowledge that really keep our cultures strong and enriched us as the oldest and longest continuous thread of human culture on the planet. But I guess the other thing that I really want to um, hammer home is when we talk about these huge moments in sort of our modern history and uh, black activism, we talk about the Torres Strait Islander Perla Strike. The Day of Mourning, Tamaragunda Walk-Off, Stockton Strike, Freedom Ride, Wayfell, so on and so forth. These huge moments in our modern history, it's always told in a way which centres men and forgets, forgets the women, even though that we, we were there right there on the front lines and we're still here, you know, we're every day in ways that define definition where we're more than daughters or sisters or aunties or mothers or all of that sort of stuff. You know, black women are militant. We're warriors, we're thinkers, leaders, and we shape we shape communities, whether they're First Nations communities or settler communities. We're, we're everywhere and it's time for everyone to take a break and really see us for all that we are, not just, you know, your familiar relations, relation or something like that. Yeah, for sure. I think that's really been evident um, lately with the protests around Invasion Day and changing yeah. the date and the, the worries of Aboriginal resistance. There's some staunch women who are really leading yeah. from the front foot there. Particularly um, our young women as well. You know, war worries of the Aboriginal resistance is led by some of the staunchest young women I have ever had, like the joy 
to know. We've also got seed mobs fighting to protect country. We've got the Jackalung, um Cultural Heritage uh, Camp happening up Ararat Way to protect birding trees from the road widening. It's all sort of being led by women, and there's so many of us young folk there as well. It's, it's incredible to see. Hmm. What's, is there anyone from the uh, Japurong campaign to, to save those um, ancient trees um, speaking today, or is there going to be a uh, school? I believe that Tarnino Ernest Williams is going to be at the march today. Hmm. Um, but I, I couldn't tell you because it sort of it depends on how many people are at the camp at any one time who leaves, um, because there is a 24-7 presence there, um, there has been for a few weeks and there will be for as long as it takes. It's staunch, it's militant, it's how a black folk do a picket, you know. Um, so it, it depends on how many people are up at the camp. Yeah, nice. It's, uh, yeah, it's obviously they're running an active picket, so that constrains their yeah. ability to <laughs> attend stuff in the city. Um, so can you tell us, like, on the NADOC page, there's a, there's a big... Um, list of, of staunch Aboriginal women from different areas. Can you tell us a bit more about some different Aboriginal women and what they've contributed to social movements and, and in other uh, areas? Well, as I mentioned before, I guess if we're going to talk about like what's happening right here and right now, you can't go past the worries of the Aboriginal resistance. I mean, we've had two major, major um, sort of moments um, of protest resistance and the assertion of sovereignty with the um, Invasion Day rally, which was the biggest one I think we've had yet. It was absolutely colossal in Nam. Mm. And the Stolen Wealth uh, protest camp happening during the Commonwealth Games up in Queensland, those were two sort of really, really incredible moments being led by a coalition of largely women and largely young black women. So you've got people like, as I mentioned, Tarnine, who got completely lambasted in the media for telling the truth, you know? And using a metaphor, we've got people like Mariki and Tasha Jago and so many of these, like, incredible, incredible young people. Um, we've also got people like Celeste Little, who, in on her through her platforms, is, again, out and speaking the truth and making sure that people are really starting to engage in that truth-telling process that is so critical to decolonising so-called Australia and decolonising individuals and communities. Um, mm. Yeah. Yeah, so that's awesome. Um, and now, what's uh, what else is planned as part of the NADOC fortnight? So obviously there's the rally today, but is there other exhibitions or events um, coming up over the coming uh, couple of weeks? Yep, so a couple have obviously already happened. Um, so we kind of, we even kicked off slightly earlier than the fortnight. We started last Friday, which is, we're just, we're going all out in Victoria. Um, so we've got the rally on um, Friday and then the NADOC ball tomorrow, which is the best night ever if you can get your hands on a few tickets. Oh, yeah. Um, it's a big, big party. There's music, there's dance, there's all of the stuff that we know how to do real well. Um, and then next week we sort of kick into the national sphere. So a lot of the events are happening sort of around the country rather than Victoria-centric. Mm. 
um, we've also got a big screening of Black Fevers happening on next Wednesday. So for those who might not know, because it hasn't had a huge run yet, um, Black Fevers is, well, I'm going to go ahead and say it's um, Australia's answer to Paris is burning. <laughs> yeah, sick. <laughs> a documentary that follows Miss First Nations, which happened last year, which was the very first um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander drag competition that happened in the Northern Territory, and it's not in the same way as Paris is Burning. It's not just about ball culture. It's all about Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander, particularly queer culture, um, and our brother boys and our sister girls, and it'll bring an absolute tear to your eyes. So there's a free screening of that happening at Trade Hall next Wednesday. Um, oh, cool. Yeah, which is wicked and very exciting that we managed to get the rights to it. Um and then there's sort of a whole bunch of local events, you know, there's smoking ceremonies, flag raising, um, and you can find all of those events if you go on the nadoc.org.au website and plug in your state, um, and it'll come up with a bunch of different things. There's also a really, there's two really excellent exhibitions happening. Um, there's the Black Matriarchs exhibition happening at the Tory Heritage Trust, which is Big Square, um, which is an exhibition that, um, showcases a range of different black women um, and their art. And there's another exhibition that showcases black women and their activism happening at the Melbourne Museum at the moment. And they're both great, and I could not recommend them higher. Yeah, sick. Oh, that's... I'm really excited about Black Divas because I haven't heard about oh, that. Yeah. I went black to a, a Vogue show, like, uh, a couple of months ago, and yeah. I was just sort of really... Uh, blown away to see a, a real life Vogue show and people like doing drops and stuff and yeah, um, it's yeah. amazing. I could, like, it's amazing. people were really conscious on the night to say it's it's really important to acknowledge that the the role of people of colour in like inventing this culture like it's it's it's, it's mm-hmm. crucial and people were saying you've got to check out Paris is Burning so I watched this um Yeah, for listeners who haven't seen um, Paris is Burning, that's about New York in the sort of 80s um, where there's like drag culture and voguing and um, yeah, the the centrality of of people of colour in in creating this culture to give themselves voice and something to rally around and incredible stuff. So to hear that there's a local um, kind of equivalent or a similar kind of thing happening... Uh, this Black Divas sounds excellent. That's so it's exciting. <laughs> It'll bring tears to your eyes. Cool. What time is that on uh, Wednesday night, actually? Uh, we'll kick off at 6. 6. All right. And it's free and there'll be some popcorn and, and some drinks and all that, you know, all the good stuff. Oh, that's so cool. <laughs> um, yeah, okay. And, and now the other p- aspect of... Um, of uh, NADOC this this year, um, because um, sorry, what, what was the theme again? Because, because of, of her that. weekend. Um, can you talk a little bit about um, Aboriginal resistance to colonisation, like going right back to the the early days of colonisation and some of the fight against that, and and the yeah, role that yeah. women played in that. So, um, so I'm Wiradjuri and Baladang, so my mob. Um, my mum's side are from uh, Western Australia, so Noongar country, a little bit northeast of Perth, um, and Wiradjuri country is 
huge in New South Wales. It's sort of from like the border of Victoria all the way up through the Blue Mountains, so I'm from the Blue Mountains then. Mm. Um, so both sides of the country kind of had slight, had, had different experiences of colonisation, like the Western end, it came a bit later than, you know, mobs that were in New South Wales, you know, it was like the very first, that first point of contact in 1788. Um, and the thing that we do know is that Aboriginal women really bore the brunt of the viciousness of the colonial onslaught, the colonial experiment. Mm. Um, so we had particularly in like the lower nations right there on the bay, um, amazing women like Barangaroo, um, who, I mean, kind of incredibly ironically enough is, has a shopping place named after her in <laughs> Sydney at the moment, which makes the skin crawl, but that's, mm. that's another rant about capitalism <laughs> um, and exploiting black bodies. But, you know, you had women like Barangaroo who did what she could to sort of, in both ways, negotiate with the colonisers so there was, it wasn't as bad, but also just, like, really staunchly refusing to cede any space, cede any power, because she was one of the... She was the matriarch of her clan, you know, mm. um, and she did everything that she could to protect that clan, um, which meant that she was one of the first, I guess, for lack of a better word, negotiators for... Um, and that sort of thing, which sort of held off a lot of the massacres for at least a decade before we sort of got into full-blown frontier wars territory. Yeah, we can. Um, um, I do apologise. We've actually got to wrap it up because Beyond Zero oh, Emissions right. are um, coming in next. But, um, All good. Yeah, right. thanks so much for speaking to us this morning. And um, keep up the awesome work there at Vic Trades Hall. And, um, yeah, have an awesome rally today. And I reckon I'll see you on Wednesday night because Black Divas sounds uh, excellent. Yeah, it's so excellent. <laughs> all right, I'll see you Wednesday. All right, rad. Cheers. All right, bye. Bye. Um, yeah, all right, Evie Shepherd there, the ATSI organiser at Vic Trades Hall Council. And, uh, yeah, stick around because Beyond Zero Emissions are coming up next. Cheers, Reese. Cheers, Jacob. Thanks for having me. See you, guys. See ya. All right, see you next week. <laughs> This brings us to the end of the show. You have been listening to Friday Morning Breakfast with Green Left Radio. Brought to you by the Green Left Weekly Newspaper, which provides a weekly source of alternative information which aims to inspire action to put people and the environment first. If you would like to subscribe to the newspaper and get it delivered to your door, you can do so by visiting the website at greenleft.org.au or call 1-800-634-206. For new subscribers, it is only $10 for the first six issues. Repeats of the show and interviews are podcasts on our homepage on the 3CR website. Thank you for listening. You are tuned in to 3CR Community Radio, 855 Digital on the AM dial and streaming live on 3cr.org.au.